1: everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Richard Edelain about his biography of Calamity Jane, entitled The Life and Legends of Calamity Jane. Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Yes, I grew up here in the American West. My father was an immigrant from Spain, uh, a Basque, a Spanish Basque, so I grew up on a sheep ranch and a very rural kind of Westerner, and really experienced rural American West, but it was only later after I'd gone into graduate school that I realized that I wanted to write about that background through uh, history and literature of the American West, and so I taught for about 40 years. I'm now retired from the University of New Mexico.
1: And uh, over the course of that career, uh, when you were talking about the American West, did you cover a variety of topics, or did you have particular uh, areas about the American West in which you focused?
0: I did. uh, In courses and in books, Uh, this uh, Climby Jane book is my 52nd book, so I've done a a variety of kinds of books, uh, but especially the the general history of the West, as well as writers about the West. So I'm a literary historian. That's been my major emphasis with uh, some entry into Western film and uh, history and biography.
1: I think that's one of the good books book, too, is that, that you're not talking about Calamity Jane's life and of course the, the the legend, but you also get into the portrayal of that legend, and I think that literary analysis is as 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 great a part of the book as the biographical portion itself, and I'm looking forward to getting into both of that with you.
0: Well, thank you for that. Sometimes the people that are fans of uh, Wild West characters like Calamity Jane want all biography and they don't want anything about uh, the legends. Here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the characters as we think of them now. In 2017, if I use the name Calamity Jane, is it the facts? Are they the facts? Are they the legends? Is it a marriage of those two? That book tried to suggest, and uh, I'm working on other books of a similar kind, I'm trying to get at the complex figure that's a combination of factual biography and legends in the form of uh, popular biographies and, and movies and novels.
1: It, it strikes me that it's a very uh, challenging prospect to sort between the two, especially for someone like Calamity Jane, about whom there is very little of a factual basis. I'm wondering, what was it that drew you to... Uh, Calamity Jane as a uh, subject.
0: It was really a a general interest. Uh, I had been teaching for about 30 years, and in academics, you write primarily for your uh, colleagues because that gets you promotion and tenure. And here I was uh, in my late 50s, early 60s, and I wanted to write general books, books that would appeal to my librarian wife and librarian daughter rather than to my fellow academics. And so I set out to look at all of the sort of demigods of Western history, Custer and Billy the Kid and the Native uh, uh, leaders. And I looked at all of them, and they all had uh, popular biographies, but no biography of Calamity Jane. So I thought, well, here's an entry point. Here's a subject that I can work on. So it wasn't a specific interest in Clapton Jane. It was a specific interest in writing about one of those popular figures of the Old West.
1: And one of the things you point out is that she's not a figure who is popular by virtue of, say, pulling her out and making her popular uh, today, but that she was a a famous figure in her own time. And yet, uh, as you explained early on... So much of her life was encrusted with all of these misunderstandings and and, and and outright fictions that were created by the people in the process of constructing that fame.
0: No question about that, Mark, that uh, she is in her early 20s, so it's about 1877 when uh, that first dime novel comes out. And she was born in 56, so she's about 21. And that dime novel, the first in the Deadwood Dick series, Overnight makes her a nationally known figure, and it wasn't it wasn't what she had done it's what she became that was attracting national attention mm-hmm. I, wonder
1: I wonder if you could uh, take us back, back then to uh, her uh, background and her family where who was Calamity Jane and, and what were her origins uh,
0: she came from a farm background her grandfather had started in uh, west virginia what is now west virginia and ohio had gradually moved west uh, her father was born in ohio and uh, I, there was there were quite a few children in the family and i think her her grandfather was looking for less expensive land and they made their way from Ohio to Iowa, and then to Missouri. And northern Missouri, if you travel there now, it's better as a grazing country than it is for row crops, although there's a lot of corn raised there, too. And I think he was looking for inexpensive land uh, for his sons and for his sons-in-law. So they arrive in the middle 1850s, and uh, the Robert uh, Calamity, or Martha Canary is her real name, Father was a a farm son, and he began as a farmer, and on the way to Missouri, uh, he had met a young woman who was only age 15 in Iowa, and they had married, and uh, a year later, uh, Martha was born in uh, Missouri, so she grew up on a farm, and very soon there were two or three other children, and we don't know for sure, she says five, we only have maybe information on three, and then there's a fallout in the family. There's a, When Grandpa James dies in 1862, uh, he's living with uh, Robert and Charlotte, uh, Martha or Clammy Jane's parents, and the inheritance patterns and what they're going to do there causes a, a fracture in the family. And uh, so Martha's parents leave and go west
1: and they eventually end up in Montana, um, yes. as you describe describing the book. What was their life there? What were they doing to make a living, and, and what sort of living, living were they providing for their uh, children? Uh,
0: I think there is tragedy pretty much in this story. Uh, I think we always say immigrants are pushed and pulled, and immigrants in this case, the Canaries, probably were pushed Uh, out because of that uh, family uh, kerfuffle, and it probably was a kind of dream of Robert's because he wasn't a very ambitious farmer, that to go west, to make it big, he would go and get involved in mining, because overnight that would be something he could make a lot of money. Well, there were the rumors of the strike in Montana. And we don't have much information about the time, from the time that he leaves um, Missouri, maybe goes to Iowa and then ends up in Montana. So he leaves about 62, maybe 63. He arrives with his family in 64 in Montana. We don't know much about which way they went, but we have uh, a story at the end of 1864 which suggests they're already in dilemmas. And, uh It probably means that he probably wasn't able to do anything out there in the way of uh, mining, and that story says, and it's tragic, says that he was a gambler, Robert was a gambler, and the mother was a woman of the worst kind. I'm actually quoting the words in the newspaper article, which suggests maybe she was selling sex there in the in the Virginia City area, or Nevada City, those two little towns there in southwestern Montana. They went to Montana, I think, because they had heard that this was a place where they could make some money mining. And so that's... When they arrived, they had no money, and uh, there was no farming there, so they did what they could to try to survive. And within two years, uh, both mother and father are gone. And
1: And so that not just leaves uh, Martha Canary an orphan, but she has these younger siblings that she, uh, in a way, has responsibility for. And You're
0: exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and, and this, of course, gets to one of the many problems, is that it's not just a challenge in terms of tracking uh, Martha Canary, but also what happens and what she does uh, with uh, her brothers and sisters.
0: Yeah, there's just... Mark, there are just a few things we know when the, the mom dies in a town not too far from uh, the Virginia City area, not too far from, uh, from Helena. And then the story is that uh, Robert, still uh, alive, and uh, at least three children, maybe more than that, thinks that maybe if he goes down to Salt Lake City, he's heard that the Mormons are good at supporting a family. My guess is that he probably wasn't much of a father, I don't mean negative, but ineffectual, probably. And they're in Salt Lake City in a year, and he then he's gone. So in 1868 or so, about that time, so 67, 68, she's 11, 12 years old, and here she's got to try to support that family. And there's a story later on when
1: the, the sister,
0: who's a year or two younger than uh, Martha, Lena, uh, criticizes Martha for her lifestyle. She says, Martha says, I sold my body to be able to support you and my brother. Uh, if that's the case, at 12 years old or so, she was doing some prostituting. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly true that here, you know, ask yourself, what in the world does a 12 year old do? Absence of family, no parents. A uh, thousand to two thousand miles away from the, what could be a family and support, and with no education. Uh, and uh, she was hard to and she tried whatever uh, to make a living. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, one of the very limited options available to her was prostitution. And yet, as we see, she also starts doing things that aren't within that range. She starts assuming these very uh, unusual roles for a woman uh, on the frontier at this time.
0: That's right and uh, that is probably the thing that begins locally not nationally but locally to attract people to her. She breaks social expectations. There are stories that she worked with uh, some of the men on the railroad uh, building Transcontinental Railroad. It was going through that area and 68, 69, so that would be just a year or two after she is assuming sort of uh, family control. She does child care. She does uh, cleaning rooms. Uh, so she does some things that are feminine, and expected of woman, but then she does some other things that are very masculine. And it, it, there's a strong case to be made that Martha got along better with men than women. And I suppose, in a way, she never really was much of a wife or mother. So the expectations of a daughter would be that she would marry and that she would have children and she would be a household engineer. She would do things at home. She didn't ever do those things. So early on, probably forced into them, she chooses things that are unusual and that attracts attention. And so by the time she's even before age 20, there are a few newspaper articles talking about her and her unusual lifestyle.
1: And this is where we start to see the degree of legend construction taking place because you referred to uh, one of the things that she did was that she may have been a scout. uh, And later on in life, she claims to be a scout for uh, George Crook uh right. also there there's a, there's an association that is claimed with Custer and i think of it on two levels one is the fact that uh she is uh making this claim of these associations with all of these very famous uh individuals in the west but also that by that point and, and even at, at a very early age it's even though it may not be true it's plausible that she could have been yes
0: yes um You know, what you said about claiming the links, those especially come out in the 1890s because now she's going to be a traveling performer, and there's no question that PR people know that they're going to sell her as this wild woman from the West. They have to tie her to some of those things that happened, and uh, so... That first big tour that she makes is 1896. Well, the Custer incident is 20 years before that. We can, uh, there factually, we can say there was no connection. She was not at all connected with Custer. But the, the, the image makers wanted to do that. There is a, a controversy as to whether she was a scout. One of the persons that traveled with Crook said he hired her as a scout. Uh, I would think quite informally if that happened, because she doesn't appear on any of the uh, official ledgers as a scout. But she did travel with those groups, not only with uh, with Crook, but she also traveled with a, a couple of other groups that went to uh, the Deadwood, what became the Deadwood area in 1874-75, before she arrives in 76. And so she was doing things, and in some cases she was one of the two or three women with a group of over 100 men. So was she traveling? uh, uh, How was she traveling with those groups? Well, some people say she was a bullwhacker, and there's pretty good evidence that she was uh, a person who was a bullwhacker, that is, in charge of uh, carts and carriages. Uh, Was she a, as those days they called them, camp follower? Maybe. Not quite Sure. And it's about that time that uh, a very good source says that she's working at hog ranches not far from the, the military installations. Hog ranches were places of prostitution, and they grew up right around the uh, military reservations. So it's complicated when we look at all those.
1: And But she clearly has some sort of experience. You mentioned her, her growing reputation. This is the Uh, point in time when she uh, acquires the Calamity Jane uh, uh, nickname and I was wondering if you could uh, relate that story
0: Yeah, Uh, and uh, what we have is her point of view and she says in her autobiography 1896 that she got that name because she helped a man who had fallen off his horse and she picked him up and put him back on his horse uh I doubt that, but that's what she says. And uh, excuse me, I need to go. <laughs> and uh he was then saved and he says, Oh, I call you calamity for what you have just done and she says that's where she got the name. Uh I doubt that because uh she wasn't with that group that has to do she called it the Nez per se and that was in 1877, and she wasn't with that group. She wasn't around there, so there's not much factual basis for that. I think that she's called Calamity first in 1875, and in fact they name a couple uh, places in uh, in, uh, the Deadwood area after uh, Calamity Creek and Calamity Mountain, Uh, and that's done in 1875. So when she's traveling with one of those groups up, to the Deadwood area. Before she goes in '76 with a Wild Bill, she is then known. This would be the summer of 1875. She's now been christened uh, Calamity Jane. That's when she's 19 years of age.
1: And, and that gets us to what is, in so many ways, this nexus point in in, in not just uh, in, in in Western history, which is uh, Deadwood, South Carolina. I uh, was I'm sorry, South Dakota uh in, in, in the uh, mid eighteen seventies. And 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 how uh, I was wondering if you could describe a bit what was happening in Deadwood at this time and how it was yeah. that, that uh uh this now is, you know Martha Canary, now calamity Jane, uh ends up in Deadwood.
0: You know, in the I think people ought to know this, that in the second half of the nineteenth century the people movers, that is, the things that happened in the West and move people West, tended to be in sort of two, two camps. One was the sensational overnight mining booms, starting with the California Gold Rush in 48-49. The other was the land hunger, and this would be something like the Oregon Trail starting in 1843. Well, Bedwood, which booms in 1876, is the latest of that series of mining booms. And they'd already been in California. They'd been in Montana when their family came out. They had been in Idaho. So this one happens in 1876. When that happens, it's in the headlines of the New York newspapers. And so what it means is the people writing sensational stories about this Wild West were pointing to in 1876 to Deadwood that overnight had anywhere from five to 10,000 people depending on which day you took the census. Well, calamity arrives about two to three months after the real flood starts. The flood, discovery of gold, actually when Custer went in 1874, he discovered that there was gold there. But there was a treaty supposedly keeping gold miners out. Well, the The government didn't keep them out, so by 75, 76, they begin to flood in. And then the gold is discovered in the Deadwood Canyon in the spring of 76. So she comes in about three or four months after that, and she comes in and rides in on the the boomtown Deadwood. Well, here's a way to understand it. She has been with a group, the Crook Group, And she has fallen out of the crook group in early 1876, gotten drunk, and has gone to Fort Laramie. And because the soldiers are paid at the end of the month, she's hanging out with the soldiers at the end of June. And she gets drunk. Uh, The description is she's about half-dressed, and they throw in the jail. Wild Bill Hickok. Decided, living in Cheyenne, that he was going to come up and make it big in Deadwood. So he starts up with his friend Charlie Utter, and they get to the Fort Laramie area at the end of June. The officer of the day says to Charlie Utter and to Wild Bill, We've got two or three ladies here. Would you take them on up to Deadwood? One of them was Calamity. And so she joins that group Fortunately, there was a man who kept a very good record of that uh, trip, and so we know all of what really can be said about Calamity Jane and Wild Bill at that time. In two weeks after that, they arrive on the main street of Deadwood, and it's, it's a dramatic thing because Wild Bill is very well known by that time, and Calamity has become known locally. And so they parade down the main street of Deadwood in July of 1876, and it's like a coming out. Now, that's local. It, uh, it it gets into the local newspapers, and there are a couple of books written about her, and it's the next year that that first dime novel comes out. So in that 76-77, she rides in on the boomtown Deadwood and is locally cheered, and the people yell out, hey, calamity, along with Wild Bill. And then in 1877, she goes into the dime novel. That now,
1: association really does seem to be uh, is the the key to her becoming this uh, this local or, or even sort of regional uh, celebrity, to being this uh, this this figure of national legend. Yeah, that's really the pivot right. point.
0: You're right, and it's tied to Wild Bill also. And just about as I tried to make clear, just about everything that's been done in popular culture. They try to make her the sweetheart, the paramour, the whatever of Wild Bill. Well, they knew one another for four to six weeks from the end of June until his death in the first week of August when he's killed. Uh, And that man who kept the really good record says there was nothing between them. They had never met before that. That time he drinks too much from the barrel of whiskey, when they get there to uh, Deadwood, they go their separate ways, and she's really not with him. She added some to that herself. And uh, I, I thought one guy had it just right. When Cranmer died and they buried her in the Mount Moriah Cemetery, right next to Wild Bill, uh, and you now this would be 1902, but he's saying, now Deadwood. Northwest characters buried right next to one another. There's no question that Calamity saw herself as a friend and maybe more to Wild Bill, but it wasn't really true. And he had no uh, inkling for her. So what happened at the time is they they were married in legend. Mm -hmm. And they've been married in legend since then. And almost any Calamity or Wild Bill story told now brings them together. But in history, they were not.
1: So she is... Emerging as a celebrity, and you describe uh, Edward Wheeler and the Deadwood Dick novel. And I I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that. Uh, Who was Edward Wheeler, uh, and and what was the, uh, sort of how prominent was this series at the time?
0: Right. Uh, Edward Wheeler uh, and the Deadwood Dick series was probably as popular as any dime novel series written during that time. Uh, And in 1877, the first in the series comes out. And in 1885, the 33rd in the series comes out. So he's averaging about four a series for a year in that series, and he's writing others. He was a very well-known dime novel writer. He didn't know much about the American West, and I always say the dime novelist wrote without fear or research, (laughs) meaning that they, they would just tell all kinds of stories. And, you know, in the absence of biography, in the absence of biography of Calamity Jane, people began to believe that what was told about her in these novels was, in fact, her her real life. Well, he wanted to create a character. There was no person Deadwood Dick. That's an imagined or created character. But popular fiction needed heroines. And heroines, in dealing with the Western dime novel, should never outdo the hero. So Deadwood Dick is the main character, but you need a hero one, in the same way that you need villains in those stories. Well, Wheeler, so far as we know, read some of the stories that were beginning to appear in Eastern newspapers about calamity in 1876, and a year later, he brings her in as a character, because he quotes from some of those essays and a part of a book that had been published in 1876, so we know he had those sources, and uh, probably, without fear, and research is true of the calamity that appears in that in that series. She, he's very little historical, and he moves them around. While of the 33, maybe 5 to 10 are in the Deadwood uh, area, they move around to all the mining boom towns. And he's so general that you don't really have to know the history of those places, but you do know the names. You do know about Leadville. You do know about the famous other mining places. And so he will set the stories there. And the stories are pretty much the same. Deadwood Dick is a fellow from uh, Pennsylvania. He's a boy who comes to the, a young man who comes to the West, and he's going to try to right the wrongs. He's, a, he's not an evildoer, although he will do things that he thinks are necessary to right the wrongs. And she's his sidekick, and she rides with him, and they are people who, in fact, try to push off the scene the bloated capitalists. So they're kind of uh, challengers to the status quo. Those days you referred to the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's as the robber barons. So what these people are trying to do is to push off the scene the robber barons, and sometimes those robber barons come from the east and are in those west, small western towns. And so they're they're the good guys, Calamity, and Deadwood Dick. Uh, by the way, they marry two or three times in the series, so <laughs> sometimes, uh, and he marries a couple of other times, too, so there isn't always a factual uh, transition from one to the other, but they evidently sold very, very well, and you can imagine uh, they, they were a dynamite on the public scene.
1: I, I'm also struck by the uh, difference in terms of the medium, which is the, the newspaper articles uh, that Wheeler draws upon, uh, which are, you know, every day you're seeing you copy out there, but these Deadwood Dick novels, they have a much more enduring presence. They're around for weeks, months, years. People are passing around. And, and so, you know, as no matter uh, how factual these newspaper articles are, and you make it pretty clear that, you know, they oftentimes are as fictional as these novels, these, these Deadwood Dick ones, which are really uh, out there engaging in a much more enduring extension of the Calamity Jane reputation.
0: You're right. You're right. There's no question about that. And one thing I would add about the newspapers, too, Mark, they're all written by men. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very difficult for wow. newspaper men at that time to know what to do with calamity. She's she's unusual. She's stark. She's dramatic. She's And so they play up all of that. We know... Uh, as I point out, we know that she had so-called husbands. We know that there was some domestic life. We know that she married on one occasion. We know that she gave birth to two children. But the newspaper articles didn't deal with those. They dealt with calamity, rode into town, had a look too much. They threw her in the, uh, she went on a toot and they threw her in the clink. And now she's going back out of town. Uh, and those were the kinds of stories, the sensational stories that so often we're told. Newspapermen in that time too, Mark, were interested in selling their stories and sometimes they, they didn't care much if they had added a few sort of suppositions for which there was no facts. <laughs> you know, no no historian or good biographer would do that, of course. And <laughs> you, you know I can I can add here too Mark, okay. I say in the introduction that I've done as much research as anybody on Calamity Jane. But there's a lot that's unknown, so what I try to do at times is give an educated guess. You know, when uh, I'm, I have more reservations than other people about Calamity being a prostitute. Not because I don't think that she couldn't have been or she wasn't, but we have no irrefutable evidence that she was. And so I say possible prostitute. Well, I'm doing that as a kind of educated guess, because we don't know for sure that she was. Other people do move right on and say she was a prostitute. Well, if they're basing it on educated guesses the same way I am, uh, then maybe they have as much basis for what they have to say as I do.
1: But at the same time, there's a difference between saying that she might have been a prostitute and saying she was a prostitute and sort of making it uh, as though it was an established fact.
0: Yes, some people as far away from me uh, in that interpretation, Mark, would say, there was no question that Calamity Jane was a prostitute. I, I, you can't say that. Uh, there are no facts to prove that. Uh, first place, no man in writing about things during that time, if he visited a House to Prostitution, he didn't leave any record of that, so as far <laughs> as I know. So far as I know, none of those hog ranches where Calamity did work. Now, whether she worked as a prostitute, we don't know that there was no record that she was a working prostitute in any of the records that were kept. And some of those houses of prostitution did keep some records. Well, then the few scanty records you might find are not in existence on Martha Jane, Calamity Jane as a prostitute.
1: (laughs) Uh, I want to return a bit uh, for a moment to the uh, Deadwood Dick novels because the calamity that is emerging in there is separate from both the reality of Calamity, Jane, and and the newspaper articles. How is she being uh, portrayed in these novels to to the American audience?
0: Young, vivacious, a good uh, gunwoman, an outstanding uh, horsewoman and as strong, uh, at least in character, as Deadwood Dick. Uh, so she is, uh, she's a kind of feminized Deadwood Dick. In other words, she has all the strengths that he has, and the feminine qualities are sort of off the scene. And uh, I think one or two novels they do talk about that she gives birth to a child. But primarily, she's a sidekick. She's, she's writing sort of like Tonto with the Lone Ranger. She is, true, a woman, but she's sort of almost a masculinized female, and so she's portrayed as a daredevil and a person that you could count on as a riding buddy, and she's courageous and uh, daring.
1: It's interesting what's left out from that, which is that you do describe the fact that she does get Married to Dick a couple times, and that she yeah. has children. But the yeah. prostitution element is is being completely left yeah. out, and also it seems so is the uh, the the overindulgence in alcohol. I, 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 yes. would, would you be would yes. you be comfortable saying at this point at this point in her life that she's already an alcoholic, or is that? Yeah, yes. There's no question that
0: by the time she reaches Deadwood, she's having trouble with alcohol. We don't have enough articles before that to know. But there's no question on that trip up to, uh, to Deadwood that she's over-imbibing in the whiskey that uh, Wild Bill has. And there's no question that she's drunk sometimes on the streets of Deadwood. Uh, that probably is her greatest failing as a human being, that alcohol increasingly uh, controls her life. What's interesting, Mark, is in those times when she's with a husband, and there are five names sort of given as husband's, usually she's off the scene now the steers example is an exception to that but she's usually off the scene because she's working with that husband away from the drama and it's then when she's more singular and by herself that she's having trouble with alcohol and appearing on the scene so it seems to suggest she does have some periods in her life usually when she's with a husband and i think part of that is. Those men were better able to get a job and earn some income than she was. This is a hard time for a single woman who's not a mom and not married to be able to have sufficient income. Calamity has a difficult time all throughout her life having enough money to support herself.
1: And that, of course, is one of the things that feeds the assumption by many people that she had must have turned to prostitution uh, in yes. order to make that different, in order to make yes. That sense. Yes,
0: yes, that's why I say sometimes, Mark, it's a tragic story. And many feminist uh, colleagues say, Dick, you should do more with the feminist side. Well, uh, I think there is a, a book that could be done on from the entirely from the feminist side uh, because it is a tragic story for the way. Uh, women were limited in the roles they could play. There was very little role for the independent, unmarried woman like Calamity. You you needed to be a daughter, you needed to be a wife, and you needed to be a mother, really, to fit into the social expectations.
1: But, of course, Calamity Jane has an additional dimension to her, which is that now, by the time you get to the late 1870s, early 1880s, she has become not... You know, uh, by her own design, but she's become a national celebrity.
0: Yes, uh, and you know, uh, it's intriguing how long it took for her to sort of capitalize on that. And I think part of it is she was not by nature entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, there was she didn't, she couldn't sell herself by herself. She needs some help to do that. And there's no question that when she has those short-term husband relationships. Then she sort of falls off the wagon in between. So if you start with the first husband in the Deadwood years and you go up to the last husband at, at toward the end of her life, that's about a 25-year period. And she never was with any of those husbands except maybe one more than four or five years. And in between, she she's not able to put her life together.
1: Uh, we've been talking about these husbands, and uh, I, I, we should make clear that what we're talking about here might be best described as common law marriages. That there's that's right, no that question
0: about that. And it, they, they didn't even—they probably didn't even go that far. Uh, she, the first one was a man that she had met when she got to Didwood, and she said, uh, "Boys, uh, I, I no longer can hang out with you. I'm getting married to, to George," uh, and that was a man that she had met. Uh, then. Uh, there's a story that maybe with a rancher by the name of Frank King up in Montana that she hung out for a while and maybe had a boy, which she called Little Calamity, in about 1882 or three, And then the one that uh, I emphasize most, because there's a legal marriage, and that's with Bill Steers in Rollins, Wyoming. And she meets him in 85, Mark, and she has a child in 87, Jesse, a daughter, who lives to be 90 years old, and she gets married to Steers the year after she's a mother. And so, uh, you know, here's one of those educated guesses. Why did she do that? My guess is, and there's no statement, my guess is she wanted there to be a name for her daughter because the word used then was bastard, and she didn't want Jessie to be seen as a bastard. And so she goes to Pocatello, Idaho. Mary steers, we have her marriage certificate, and he disappears. So maybe all she really wanted was to be able to have the, the name for her child. Ironically, when she has the next husband, the fourth one, she says he's the husband of, of her daughter. But he didn't, she didn't meet him until two or three years after Jesse was born. But there's an example of her wanting to be like other women. But her lifestyle kept
1: her from following that tradition. Yeah, she definitely, and, and, and that's one of the things you you talk about in the book as well. Is is what we know of her character based upon, uh, you know, what you can distill from some of the contemporary newspaper articles and also interviews that were done afterward, and which is that she's not this hard-driven. Uh, you know, in, in entirely masculine figure that she does have a she's very generous. She uh she has these She loves st-
0: children, Mark. She loves children. A and,
1: loves- and, and, and she aspires to these things. It's just that as you described, there, there's there's a there's a gulf between aspiration and, and her ability to overcome uh her, her demons.
0: You know, Mark, I think that uh, for us as thinkers, we sometimes find it easier to do either or thinking rather than both-and-thinking, because both-and-thinking leads to complexity. Mm-hmm. And I think both-and-thinking should be applied to calamity. Was she this kind of semi-wild woman who broke lots of traditions? Yes, she was. Was she a woman who wanted to be like other pioneer women? Yes, she did. Was she a uh, uh, an a- angel in... Uh, in uh, difficult situations, helping people? Yes, she did. So I think those three uh, uh, desires are conflicting in her life. Mm-hmm. That is, she she was a person who wanted to be independent, she was wanting to be like other people, and she was helpful. And all of those are conflicting, and sometimes one predominates in her life, and sometimes another.
1: So was that desire to uh, be uh, a provider, or was that what... Uh, led her to uh, participate in the traveling shows uh, near the end of her life?
0: Uh, she was in a small town in western Montana in 1895, Ekalaka. Uh, it's a town now has, well 500 people. I've been there a couple of times and talked to people about their stories about her. And they had some stories 120 years later about her being there. And I think it was clear that she was with the fourth husband, and his name was Clinton Burke, and she was with him quite a while. I think he realized that uh, he was just barely making it working on a sheep and cattle ranch there. She really didn't have any work. They were about 10 miles outside of town. And so some letters, and since she was illiterate, probably are written by him. I've never seen these letters, but they're evidently in existence. And they wrote back to Deadwood and said we really ought to have uh, Calamity come back to Deadwood and because she was there at the beginning well let's see that's twenty years after she first appeared, that morphs into uh, a story of, of, of going with as they call them the the dime novel uh, tours, uh, Cole and Middleton uh, and they were traveling groups. And they had usually with a group they had grotesque human beings, uh, three legged men and Uh, heavy, heavy men and women, and then they had a Wild West section, and so they hired her upon, and it was fifty dollars a week. Well, that was really good. Evidently, she did a pretty good job. She would give a kind of monologue, and then maybe answer some questions, and so she started out in January until about June. She was on that, and Jessie, her daughter, then was about eight years old, and the story came through that Jessie was sick, She had stayed in Spearfish, uh, South Dakota, and so Calamity came back to Deadwood. And I think that was an example, if it's entirely true, of her wanting to mother that child and that that was more important to her than making that $50 a week when her her daughter was sick in in South Dakota. So it was probably pretty successful, but she couldn't follow up on that. Mm -hmm.
1: You you mentioned as well in the discussion of the shows is that, uh, in particular when you uh, joined the second show, that when she she basically turned her uh you know the management of her life if you will her day to day life to this woman and so she the, the alcohol consumption was, was restrained and she she was able to manage herself but again once she broke away from the show and was on her own that's when uh again she uh you know this has come to the alcoholism
0: yeah it's in 1901 when she goes to Buffalo uh, uh New York and uh, I always point out Mark that. She's there in August, and one of the real tragedies in American history happens in September. That's when McKinley is assassinated at that uh, Buffalo Pan-American Exposition. So she's there just the month before that. And this also shows how she can reach out. Buffalo Bill, whom she had sort of maybe met, but she certainly didn't travel with the Wild West show, as she said. And, And Buffalo Bill said that, too. She did not. Uh, she traveled with two groups. She traveled with that group in 1896, and then she traveled with that woman, the writer from New York, and went to the Pan-American Exposition. She didn't travel, but she performed there in, in Buffalo for a few few weeks and had trouble with alcohol again, and went to Buffalo Bill when he appeared on the scene, and he paid her way back uh, to come back. At that time, Mark, she was not with her husband, and I think that's a part of I don't mean that men were the answer to her dilemmas. It just means that when she didn't have stability with another person, whether that be male or female, that's usually when she had the most difficult, faltering times in her life. I,
1: I wonder if you could describe uh, for us uh, something about her final days and, and, and how it was that she uh, ended up uh, buried in Deadwood.
0: Yeah, alcohol is pretty much uh, ruling her life in those uh, last months. And uh, in early part of 1902, she comes into South Dakota, and she's just sort of been waltzing around in the various towns. I don't know how she makes it financially. Uh, I think she's doing, she tries to sell her autobiography and pictures, and that's some. I think she mooches off of people because she has almost no money and alcohol is pretty much dominating things. She appears in uh, just north of uh, Rapid City, and she goes to work in a house of prostitution, not as a prostitute, but works there. And later, the lady who was the madam writes a little book about that. And for about three weeks, she's okay, and Jessie, her daughter, evidently is with her. And they have a falling out about that time. I, I suppose that maybe Jessie had become pregnant at about age 15, and maybe there was a falling out between mom and daughter. And the lady who wrote the book, the madam who wrote the book, said, one day uh, Calamity got into the alcohol and went shouting up the street like a wild coyote. And then she disappears from that job, uh, just kind of floats around the area of Rapid City and then heads for Deadwood, thinking that maybe she can survive there. She gets on a train headed up to a town that no longer exists, and she dies not far from from Deadwood, of really, of alcoholism. And uh, it's intriguing how people react to her. They don't react to the tragedy. They react to sort of the death of a demigod, a kind of consort of Wild Bill. And we don't really know whether she said, bear me next to Wild Bill or whether uh, some jokesters in Didwood said, we ought to bury her next to Wild Bill, I'd make him turn over in his grave. (laughs) They do. They bury bury her right next to uh, him. And uh, there's no question that people don't know how to respond at the beginning. And so uh, there are some wild stories. And here's an example of how much people didn't know. The very next day, since you have Telegraph, the story of her ending of her life goes to the New York Times, And a terrible story appears there, which is 90% wrong. And so what it suggests is in in a leading newspaper in the United States, you have a kind of obituary and a kind of summing up of her life that's way off kilter about what actually happened in her life.
1: Now, many biographies end at that point, but you go on to describe the, uh, the course that her image takes. And it's it, it's it's a very interesting journey that it undergoes, and it begins after that brief burst of of of, of posthumous publicity, in, in that she fades for uh, from the scene for uh, from the imagination for a couple decades.
0: Yeah, uh, and a lot of people, you know, need to see that in context. The 1920s were a hugely popular time for the West. Zangré is at the top of the best. More Western films are made than any other genre. There's silence in uh, Hollywood. And the first biographies of people like Calamity and Wild Bill and Buffalo Bill and uh, Wild Earth come out. So it's a hugely popular time. Well, the first biography comes out in 27. um, And it's Prima Jane and Wild Women of the West. And it portrays that man was interested. He was a journalist. He was interested in the sensational side but it's kind of positive about her uh and then you get uh, start to get movies in the in the 30s and she's kind of a supporting figure and quite often tied to uh Wild Bill so you have that popular coming on in the late 20s early 30s and that reaches its apex you know in uh Calamity Jane, the musical in uh, in 1953 so that's the positive incline and Part of it is she's portrayed as a lively woman of the Old West, not a prostitute, not a drunk. So the emphasis are on a lively, sort of tomboyish uh, person in the West.
1: Almost uh, more of a free spirit than anything else.
0: That's right. And then uh, it, just as the 20s were a high, to- high time, the 50s were a high time in popular Western stuff, Gunsmoke and John Wayne and popular Western uh, fiction, uh, Louis Moore comes on scene, and then the 60s changes that, and we begin to ask questions about American values, and the black humor comes in, and so what happens to climate Jane again, is a large part of something that's happening in American culture, and one of the great myths of American culture is this wild, wild west, and so... Myth-breakers begin to ask questions about the West. Was it all this dramatic, positive sort of place? No, it was a hellhole in lots of ways. And so when you begin to bring calamity into that change, I call it, and it, you can re- really see it in the fiction and films from Larry McMurtry, because Larry McMurtry, Larry McMurtry is an example of a person who will turn the West, and he, by the way, he's a Texan, he grew up in that sort of old West, But he saw the West, and I call it the gray West. And what I mean by that is, yes, you have some positives, but you have some negatives. And it isn't the white hats versus the black hats, like we've had in the 20s and 30s. It's The best a hero can be is a mix of good and bad. And that person wears a gray hat. That person is gray morally. And those are the kinds of images that come out in uh, the climate change films that come in the seventies and eighties and nineties. And it's a change. It it moves away from the Doris Day. The high point is that romantic, the musical in nineteen fifty three. Uh, then the low point would be Deadwood movie series probably in two thousand four to two thousand six, where the great calamity is really much not much more than a drunken prostitute. Played very well by Robin Weigert. She does a very good job. But it's a very narrow picture of her. We get nothing. We get the drunken prostitute. And by the way, a kind of uh, there's some suggestion of lesbianism there, which I don't think was true at all in her life. But you don't get anything about the aspiring pioneer woman. There's no mention that she uh, had a husband or that she was a mother. So what you get is Robin Weigert's picture of a very negative gray uh, uh, calamity. I don't know, you know, we've had 10 years since then, and there hasn't been much. I tried in my book, and Jim McClure tried in his. His is the definitive uh, biography of Calamity Jane, about 2006 or so. And so in the last 10 years or so, we two biographers have tried to portray a balanced calamity. That's, uh, you know, both and. She had those dilemmas and then negativities, but she had the positives, too. And that's the way we probably ought to see her factually. But at the same time, and I'm more interested in this, we ought to understand the legends and how they've changed over time.
1: And one of the things you uh, uh, identify as well when you're describing this this, this posthumous evolution of her image is the degree to which the, how difficult it was to you, know, de- you know, define uh, Calamity Jane given how much of those fictional depictions were based on fictions themselves, about how you had all these, uh, you know, biographies that were based upon uh, the image or the uh, news reports and how they never, and, and, and there was never really a, a lot of effort to, to try to burrow down to what was uh, the, 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 the truth about Clementine Jane, even by the people who, who claimed to undertake that task by writing what were uh, peddled as factual biographies.
0: You especially, Mark, I'll give you one example of the, the very difficulty you're talking about. We know Jessie to be the daughter. We know that she lives to be almost 90 years of age, although there's not very much factual information. But in the early uh, 1940s, a woman comes forward, gets on national radio and says she's the daughter of Wild Bill and Calamity Jane. For almost 20 years, people bought that. And nobody had done the factual research to prove. And she said she had a diary it was written by Calamity, and uh, she said that the Hebrew were some letters. I don't know where the diary and the letters came from, and nobody has been able to figure that out. But Jim Mcleod went down uh, fact by fact to show that this woman is a fraud. But it took about 20 years for people to realize that, and in between, people were basing films, some very good films, and some biographies, on that false information and it it took that long and part of it has to do jim you're working with an illiterate heroine and so you don't have information that she would have left us how much difference that is in seeing uh what annie oakley left us or what belle Starr left us two other women that were associated with the wild west so you're right what you do is you get footnotes on false footnotes, and this, the second footnotes are as extreme and exaggerated. On the other hand, what people do is they're still telling the story of Calamity and Wild Bill. I doubt whether we'll ever lose that, even though Jim McClare and I are trying to show that that's not true at all. People still want to buy that.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it, it goes back to that great line from the John Ford movie that people want to, you know, want to you know, continue printing the legend even when they know it's not the truth. Uh,
0: print the legend. That's mm-hmm. right. That's
1: right. Yeah. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yes. Uh, I have three, three books. Uh, one is coming out uh, in uh, August, September. It's called Ernest Haycox and the Western. He was a writer of popular westerns. And this was my doctoral dissertation done in 1966, so... You know, 50-year gestation period, that's kind of unusual. He was uh, very popular. And by the way, he wrote the story upon which Stagecoach was based in that 1939 John Ford John Wayne film. And his best-known novel was uh, Bugles in the Afternoon, a custer. Then uh, Glenda Riley and I, she's a very well-known Western historian, have uh, co-authored a book called U.S. Presidents and the American West, and we use Ten Presidents to show how they shaped the American West from Thomas Jefferson up to uh, Ronald Reagan. And now I'm deep into two volumes on Billy the Kid. And what I'll try to do with Billy the Kid is the same thing I did with Calamity. A book which deals with the life and legends, and then a second book that will be a kind of reader's guide to everything that's been written or made about Billy the Kid. There's been probably three or four times as much written on Billy as on Calamity. He was just about as illiterate, but uh, I think the demigods tended to be male, so there's more written about him than about Calamity. But my approach is somewhat the same. I want to do a both-and book where you see the murderous Billy. He was a murderer, but you also want to see him as a gregarious, laughing, cheerful guy that a lot of people loved, especially Hispanic people. Hmm.
1: Well, those sound like some excellent projects, and I hope we can have you back at some point to uh, discuss uh uh, some of them with us.
0: Okay. I'm indebted to you.
1: Oh, oh thank you. Uh, Dick, thank you very much for taking some time from your uh, uh, busy schedule to uh, speak with us. I, I hope you have a wonderful day. My
0: pleasure.